Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Our introducing to you these three key relationships we feel are at the heart of the Christian journey. And for the next couple weeks, and, and starting with last week, we're looking at this first relationship, which is reaching up to God. That vertical relationship we have with God is the most important relationship in your life. And I know that sounds like something you hear all the time in the church, but you've got to really hear what we're saying here. This relationship you have with your God is the single most important relationship in your life. And so we begin there by saying that in our lives, along the way, one of the things we strain forward to do is reach up to strengthen that and build that relationship of intimacy with God. And this morning we're going to look at one way we do that, And that is worshiping God through serving Him. If we could hit that next slide. Worshiping God by serving Him. And the text is Luke 17, verses 7 to 10. And before we look at that text, go to the next slide for a second. I want to ask you a question here. What do you see in this picture? What do you see there? Is that person taking down a book from the shelf or putting a book back onto the shelf? You tell me. Who votes for taking a book down? And who votes for putting a book back? Right. The second group are the ones whose houses are really clean. And the first group got good grades in school. Right. You're taking all the books down. It's interesting that you can take a freeze frame, one photo, and you you see a completely different scenario depending on your perspective. It's the same thing if I shown you a picture of a glass that was either half full or half empty. The point of these kinds of pictures is to do this. It's to challenge the fact that your perspective makes a huge difference in what you see. Now listen, when we talk about reaching up to God, perspective makes a huge difference for us. Because for a lot of people, when you think about reaching up to God, the knee-jerk reaction, the automatic association is, I'm reaching up to God because God has what I need. And I'm not just talking about material provision. We're saying, God, I need to be blessed. My heart is dry. I don't feel loved. You have everything I want and need. And I'm reaching up to you to pull a book down from the shelf. And that is generally how we have arranged this relationship with God. And that's not so wrong because the truth is we are to be reaching up to God with empty hands because he delights in filling those hands. That's a good thing. But we also have to remember that as we're reaching up to God, another part of that relationship is that we offer up ready hands, hands filled with something to give to God. We're not just pulling books down from the library of God's blessing. We ourselves are meant to be a blessing and an offering lifted up to God. And that's one of the things that we hope this text this morning will speak to all of us. That in this vertical relationship with God, one of the greatest ways to strengthen and build that relationship is to worship God by offering Him our service. Something that comes from deep within the heart that God will not coerce out of us or control us to get, but when we give it to Him, creates a a very meaningful bond between us and God. In other words, we're going to talk today not just about getting something from God, but offering something to God and finding in that act a strengthening of this vertical relationship. Let's read the passage together. If you guys could flash up there, Luke 17, 7 through 10. I'm switching it up on you guys a little bit there. See how quick you are. Luke 17, verses 7 to 10. And we're going to look at it in the ESV. 
<clears throat> if you have your Bibles, feel free while they're flipping for the slide there to look at up. Luke 17, verses 7 to 10. Let's read it together here. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Wow. That's not a user-friendly passage of Scripture. If you are into church marketing, this is one of the taboo passages. You don't preach on this. It's a hard pill to swallow, and you're not going to grow your church preaching passages like this. This is one of those scriptures that tests in our hearts whether we accept God's word because we agree with it and it agrees with us, or whether we accept it because it is God himself speaking these things to us. Can we be honest for a second? A lot of the teachings of Christianity we accept because there's a certain way in which that already agrees with the person we see ourselves as. Like, for example, you shall not commit adultery. And we're thinking, I love my wife. I don't want her cheating on me. I don't want to cheat on her. And that already agrees with some value I hold deeply. And so, yeah, I can accept when the preacher says, don't commit adultery. Because that's already found an anchor point in my life before I walked in here. But there are some passages of scripture where when you read it, there is no anchor point in your heart. It does something to you inside that churns away. It's it's gripping at you because it's saying this is one of those passages where it's not about whether you deeply agree with it or not, but whether you acknowledge that God has authority to define truth for us. It's one of those passages where our agreement is secondary and our recognition of God's authority is primary. And that's something to think about. Because for the most part, we are Christians because Christianity agrees with us. But if we are truly followers of Christ, he must reserve the right even to say to us those things which everyone would hear and say together, like it was recorded in the New Testament, this is a hard teaching. This is not something that's easy for me to accept. And yet, accepted I must. And so I want to look at three things that have to do with servanthood as a form of worship that I think we need to be very clear about if our service to God is going to be meaningful and enriching at all. And the first of those is authority. Authority. Just leave that word out there for a second because just look at it. I I tried to create even a slide that's very Spartan and authoritarian looking. Just look at that's like a government placard right there. It's something you'd see Big Brother posting all over. Authority. Look at it. All capitals shouting at you. You know, authority is not something that we in America really like that much. America as a culture, we're all kind of like this nation of teenagers. We really don't like being told what to do. Don't tread on me, right? Live free or die. And I think that's great. I think there's something powerful in that spirit. But when it comes to God, we've got to be very careful how we handle this concept of authority. You know, one of the reasons I think this is such a hard story to read and hear that Jesus told here 
is because in this particular encounter, we have only two characters in the play. If you put this on Broadway, it's a two-man show. There's a master and there's a servant. And the way the story is told, there is absolutely no sense in which these two characters are equal. You know, one of the American ideals is no matter what your job or title is, at the end of the day, you and I are worth the same thing. We are all created equal. So maybe you might be the president of the United States and I might be just a a Joe Schmo voter taxpayer. But at the end of the day, despite our rank, you and I as Americans are both of equal value. Your life is not worth more than my life. And that's an important idea, I think. It has served this country very well. But we extend that even to our relationship with God, and that's where so much of the confusion begins. We're not used to stories where there is no equality between the characters. And in this story, the authority gap between the master and the servant are presented so starkly and without any adornment. And we have to look at that and say, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm not comfortable with the idea that we're not talking about an employee and a a supervisor. We're talking about a master and a slave. You consider this picture that Jesus is painting. You've got a, a servant. He's out plowing in the fields or tending the sheep all day long. And whose field or whose sheep do you suppose it is? It's master's. And he's probably sitting on his porch, sipping a mint julep or something, and, and just watching his kids practice their piano. And he's having a wonderful, nice time while his employees or his slaves are out there working and working his property. And when that slave has risen at dawn and is finished at sunset, is coming in from the field completely exhausted, what does he find? He walks into the house ready for a shower and a cold glass of water. And what he finds is master is sitting at the table and he's looking expectantly at him like, where's my supper? Now, I want you to picture that if you're not, you're asleep if you're not tense by now. I mean, this, this is a messed up story here. And if you're this, and most of us automatically will identify with the servant in the story, right? A few of you imperious types are there like, oh, no, I actually identify more with the master. Because you're used to having people under you. But the truth is, most of us see ourselves in that slave's position, and we're indignant. We say, what is this? He works all day. He walks into the house. He has rights and needs. And yet, here's this master saying, no, uh, 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 don't you even think about going to the locker room. First, go and freshen up, and then wait on me, and let me have my meal. And then, once I'm finished and I'm satisfied, you go ahead, and what you do after that is your own business. Jesus is intentionally being very, very extreme in the story. He is not in any way hiding the fact that this slave and this master are not and will never be equals in any place in this society. And he's saying this to tell us something very important about the relationship that exists between us and our God. There is a difference between those with authority and those under authority. You know, I think much of the tension, and by the way, how many of you guys have employees serving under you at work? I I just want to see a show of hands. All right, so you're used to having the boss hat every now and then. I'm learning, I used to be senior pastor of this church, senior of myself only. I actually have people under me now, so I have this whole new boss hat I'm learning to wear, and it's a tricky hat, man. Because sometimes the people under you forget they're under you. Not, not, not our staff, of course. They're perfect people at our staff. But I'll bet you you've had an experience 
where there's a little tension, a little, uh, let's arm us a little over this, because you might be the boss, but you know I can still haggle with you. We're talking about an employee-supervisor relationship. That is our whole mindset in the West, isn't it? And I think that's where a lot of the tension arises in reading this story, is that we take an employee-boss mentality and we apply it to a story about a master and his slave, and that's two incompatible mindsets completely. Are you with me? We're talking about trying to understand a slave-master relationship in the context of an employee-supervisor relationship, and you're not going to ever make sense of the story that way. If you look at it through an employer-employee relationship, here's how the story might read. I did my work. I fulfilled my job description. I started right on time. I punched out on time. I am now off the company clock, and this is my personal time. I walk in, and this boss of mine inappropriately crosses a boundary, invades my personal life, and in my own time, he gives me, while I'm off duty, a work-related assignment, and I'm ticked about it. This is unpaid overtime, and I don't like it. This is not right. Am I not a human being with creature comforts and needs? Don't I also have to have certain things done for me? And so there is this sense, this tension that arises for the American mind reading this, that this master has completely disregarded the worker's rights and needs, and he's violating his personal life. Shouldn't there be a time when every worker punches out and they're off duty? And, and so perhaps, for example, I run into Susie at, at the shopping mall on, on a Thursday evening. And she's out there with Hans having a Jamba juice or something. And I go, hey, Susie, uh, can you actually come over here and give me some napkins? And she could say to me, and I don't think she would because she has such a good heart. But she could say to me, uh, we're at the mall, not at the office. I'm not your slave, I'm your employee. And there are boundaries there. And I think that's where the tension arises. We are so oriented around boundaries. And Jesus is presenting a story where there are no boundaries to the authority. That's where the discomfort comes. Because the authority is complete in this story. This is not about someone you negotiate with. It's about somebody who has complete dominion and authority. Over your life. Can you flip to the next slide for a second there? Do you realize whenever in the New Testament, in English, we read the word servant, it actually translates a Greek word. Flip it over the next, click it again. Doulos. That's a really strange sounding word. But doulos is the word better translated into English as slave. Now there's a reason in English we don't use the word slave because both in, in the in, in England as well as the United States, there is a very, very dark history related to that word. And so as a choice, most of the time, we have translated it with a less offensive word, servant. But make no mistake about it, whenever you read the word servant in the Bible, the real word standing behind it is a very strong word. It describes this relationship where the, where the authority is total and complete It is slave. That is the way in which we are meant to hear and understand that word when it's presented to us. Are you okay with that concept? That when you relate to God, His authority over your life is total. See, there is no other being on this planet 
that has that kind of authority. So we cannot find an illustration in life that helps us understand this. That's why I must preach it from the pulpit, because I can't point to you a picture in your life that helps you understand this. There is none. We don't live in a monarchy. We live in a democracy. And so you'll have to just... Take it on faith that when you and I relate to God, we do so as subjects under a king or slaves under a master whose authority over our lives is absolute and far-reaching and total. (laughs) I can't believe I just said that because it's such a huge thing to think about. And so I'm going to give you about 20 seconds just to let that marinate before you get caught away in the stream of additional words. In your life, God's authority is total. While you're thinking about that, I'm just going to look at the faces. Mm. And there's some spiritual indigestion going on in this room. You're, you're looking a lot like how I was feeling preparing this message because, you know, when you preach, one of the occupational hazards is you've got to preach intensely for one whole week to yourself out of the same text. And I realize that I'm God's employee a lot of the time, and I'm not God's servant. There's a big difference there. Maybe as a Christian today, you have some serious confusion about God's authority in your life. Maybe this describes the way you think of God. He's the great middle manager in the sky. You're willing to acknowledge that he's several pay grades above you, but you still are very aware of your rights and you're ready to fight to defend them. Does that describe the picture of the way you relate to God's authority? He's the great middle manager in the sky, but you have rights and you're ready to fight to defend them. If that's the way you think about the authority of God, then I guarantee you this you will remain in some level of confusion about that relationship for a very long time. Because that isn't the foundation upon which your relationship with God can ever be built. You will never understand Christianity completely if you don't begin at this place where you acknowledge that God's authority rightfully over your life and my life is total. Does that describe your authority relationship with the living God this morning? I'm not saying it doesn't. This is not me yelling at you. I mean, I'm just asking the question. If that's what you're hearing, it could be God that's saying that, not me. Is this where you begin this morning? That when you think of God, you're relating to a God whose authority over your life is complete. Well, here's a good uh, litmus test. When you hear announcements given at this church presenting opportunities to get hooked up with God in service, how do you hear those announcements? And let's be honest with each other for a moment. Please don't feel like I'm trying to manipulate you to some conclusion. Let's just be honest for a second here. When you hear an announcement, let's say, for example, I tell you that frontline men's ministry needs somebody to manage our database and stay on top of keeping everybody's information current. It's really important. We really need someone to do it. Would you please do it? And we put that announcement on the web page, on a grapevine, in an email. I announce it on Sundays. When that announcement finds its way into the periphery of your life, how do you receive it? Do you hear it as, oh, 
Here's a volunteer organization I belong to and a great opportunity to get involved. Let me weigh my life capacity and situation, consider this option, and make an informed choice. Is that the way you hear it? At one level, that's the way you must hear it. I acknowledge that. But along the way, if you've been at this church for several years, is that the way you've heard every single announcement? Has there ever been a time where as you're hearing an announcement about what seems like nothing, oh, you know, we need someone to deliver packages to the post office every once in a while. And it's like, it's like nothing, but you hear in the midst of that a deep, resounding voice of authority saying to you, son, daughter, this assignment is for you. I call you by the authority which is mine to have you serve me in this way. I have got a hold on your heart because you acknowledge my authority and I am calling you into my service so that when you hear this seemingly innocuous announcement about a service opportunity, your spirit simply cannot resist me and you will be bound to serve me because my authority over your life is total. Some of you are looking at me like, what are you drinking before church? That's not a normal conversation most of us will have in our hearts when we hear an announcement. But if we recognize the authority of God and we stand in that situation with Him, at some point along the way, you must start to hear God's voice in the midst of all the human calls to get involved. It's not just about weighing options and making choices. At some point, if you really recognize God's authority, that authority must be brought to bear in reality at some place in your life. Consider what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20. Flip that slide, would you? This is a really hard thing to read also. You are not your own. You have been bought at a price. You know, you hear me often from this pulpit say to you things like, that's hard to hear, or that's hard to read. And I, I think that's meaningful. I mean, if you're really listening to what God is saying, so much of His Word is so hard to read. If you just have a wonderful, cozy old time, and every quiet time you have, you're half asleep, brother or sister. <laughs> I mean, you read a passage like this, and you gotta be, it could ruin your whole day. You're going, what? What do you mean I'm not my own? I've been bought at a price. I'm my own person. I have rights. I'm free. And yet the Word of God says to us very clearly, you do not belong to yourself. But you belong to a God who has rightfully and at a great price paid to have you. You are not your own, but you were bought at a price. And at some point, if you're an honest human being, you need to weigh your Christian journey against words like these and say, do they match up? I can't blur my eyes and cover my ears forever. At some point, I must let the scalpel of God's word do something on me. I must have a spiritual CAT scan of the soul and say, does this actually describe the way that I relate to God? Because if it doesn't, then something is seriously amiss. You know, for example, if you get a CAT scan of your brain, do you know that there's supposed to be something connecting the two halves of your brain? Do you know about that? I think it's called the corpus callosum, if I remember basic anatomy. And what if the, the person said to you, we did your scan and it's weird, you got two halves of a, a nut up there, but nothing's connecting them. Wouldn't you say, oh, there's something wrong? You wouldn't say, interesting, hmm, what's for lunch? You know, at some point, God's word has to line up well with the way you actually relate to him, because if it doesn't, 
There is something seriously and deeply off about your understanding and experience of redemption. I'm just going to stop on that point and just leave it there and entrust the Holy Spirit to keep preaching that to you as you leave this place. There's another word we've got to deal with when it comes to serving God. Click. Thank you. That is priority. Priority. I can't read this passage without getting a little uncomfortable or hot under the collar because I so sympathize with a tired worker. Now, last night, I simply couldn't sleep because there's so much on my mind. You've heard me say this a thousand times. Last night was another one of those nights where I was just, you know, I didn't sleep, so I just sat there and I labored for the Lord. And around four in the morning, I finally closed my eyes. And then next thing I knew, literally, it seemed like a second, and there's Jeannie going, Dave, it's like eight o'clock. Don't you have to get going? And I just remember thinking in my heart, God, I have needs too. Give me some sleep, please. I'm tired of this. So I sympathize with this weary, worn out, tired servant who just can't wait for the day when he can take an extended nap, a hot shower, have a nice cold cup of water to drink. I look forward to that and I identify with him. And so there's something that makes me very uncomfortable because something about the priorities in this thing is all wrong. Shouldn't a good and compassionate master see the servant's need and make that a priority? And yet he doesn't. It seems so cold to me. He sits there and says, no, that's not the way it works, slave. When you come in here, I come first, and then you come second. That's the way it goes. And I have a hard time with this. Let me ask you something. If you had to list your priorities of loyalty and just basically your life priorities in order, who are you most giving priority to? How would you write that list? Can you flip to the next slide for a second there? A typical priority list for most Christians who are active in church might look something like this. Number one is God. I mean, duh, right? So you're going to all put that right there. In fact, we wouldn't even need to leave that one blank. We could have that pre-printed. Okay, number two, family. Can you give me some verbal feedback? Are we okay so far? Is it like, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, number three, God's work or church, if you want to put it that way. And number four is my job. And number five Maybe leisure. So that's not, you know, I mean, just kind of a stab at how most people's lists might look. In general, raise your hand if you agree somewhat with that list. Okay. And, and I've, I've given that list to people exactly as it's written, but I've got to make a confession to you. That list is changing for me as a result of this week's deep meditation on a couple passages of Scripture. Now, where do you think the tension for most people on that list comes what are the two numbers that you think are sometimes duking it out for priority? Three and four. Absolutely. Thank you, Jane. Three and four. I think that's where... Gold star later. Don't let me forget. Three and four are where we have so much tension. I mean, very often as a pastor, I'm the voice of number three, kind of saying to people, uh, could you um, help? And... I'm the voice of the church saying to people, please come and give of yourself to God's work. But you know that all day long, for 40 to 50 to 60 to, do we have any 70-hour-a-week people here? So let's cap it at 60. Some insane amount of time, you are beholden to another boss, another voice that makes demands on you. And so these two live at tension in your life all the time. And so you're making choices all the time. Like, I had a rough day at work. Do I really feel like going to this thing and helping out? 
This is one of those days where my job and God's work are having a serious celebrity boxing match, you know, and, and I don't know which one's winning some days. That's where most people feel the tension. But here's something I'm learning by reading God's word. A real tension is also existing between number two and number three. Flip to the next slide so you can see the typical thing is number three and number four duking up. But let me tell you something. When you read God's word and pay attention to it, you discover that number two is not necessarily family hands down. In American evangelical Christianity, we have under James Dobson's leadership so focused on the family, we have elevated it to become one of the highest spiritual values. It has become an inviolable temple of religious priority for American Christians, hasn't it? So that, no matter what we're talking about, when you cite family as your reason, it's a conversation killer. There's nothing left to say. How dare you? How dare you mess with family? Are you even a Christian? Don't you know that the order is, unquestioningly, God, family, and then church? You know how many times I talk to people about this too? And I say, you know, young man, you're going into ministry. Never forget that your family always comes before the church. If your family's not happy, you're sinning and your work has become an idol. You know why we grew up saying that, I think? Because when I was growing up, I historically saw so many abuses of family, so much neglect of family in the name of putting God first. Ministers, in my experience, were some of the worst fathers in the world. That's why pastors' kids were often so messed up, because they were running around effectively as ministry orphans. They were taught by their daddies that they're always second, and other people always come first. And that's a hard way to live your life. But I think what happened along the way in correcting that error was that we swung the pendulum too far to the other side, and we have elevated family to the status of idol in our world. It's become that card you can always pull out of your pocket and say, ah, 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 ah. Pastor, stop your talking. Don't let your, your gums and lips flap anymore because what I'm pulling here is the family card. I'm a good daddy. I'm a good mommy. And because of that reason, I can't say yes to you because family must come second. Now, if I haven't ticked you off already, I <laughs> listen, before you walk out of the room, just hear God out a little bit. I think he wants to finish this sentence for you. When you read the New Testament, there is absolutely no disputing that family is of great importance to God. In fact, he even uses family language to describe our relationship with him. He is father. We are his children. That's a beautiful language to use. But even as he affirms family, he leaves no doubt in our minds throughout the New Testament that when it's a contest between family and God, there is no contest. Now, here's why I can say that boldly, because I believe God has given us the time, the energy, and resources to honor both God and family if we are not selfish and sinful. I believe it's possible to honor both without having to force a choice between one or the other. But if a choice is ever thrust upon us, can there ever be any confusion for us about which one must win the day? Do you remember at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which most people regard as the sex chapter, right? 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 7 is the sex chapter. For many men, it's their favorite passage to cite. They got it in a little 
little piece of paper folded up in their wallet. It's the one that says, Wives, your body does not belong to you, but to your husband. You know, guys, if you don't have that already printed, you should memorize that one. And it's a whole passage that elevates marriage as one of the greatest earthly blessings and one of the most important human priorities in this life. But at the end of that passage, Paul says something that we must pay attention to. He says, listen, from now on, this is 1 Corinthians 7.29. You flip that up there. I think I've got it on the slide. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. What a strange verse. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, settle down. That doesn't mean what you think it means. All right? Here's what it does mean. In no way could Paul be denying the value or priority of family, but here's what he's saying. So great should your loyalty to God's kingdom work be that even marriage must not eclipse your submission to God in this. Even marriage must not allow you ever to become confused about whom you serve and whose life must be, who your life must be given priority to. Family is important, but it must never compete with God for the deepest loyalty of your heart. Family is for earth, and we shall know each other if we've done our jobs forever and eternity, but family as an institution is not eternal in the same way that our redemptive relationship with God and His kingdom are eternal. And so He says to us, honor your families, but never grow confused. Even marriage must not dampen your faithfulness as a servant of the living God. And so married people, I want to ask you a question because single people, you know how it works, right? What's married people's favorite sentence? Let the single people do it. Because why? They ain't got no life, right? Isn't that the way so many men, and usually it's not the married people without kids, it's those arrogant married people with kids, right? We're always going, what? We're busy, we got kids. Let everyone else do that stuff. And that's a bad attitude to have. Listen, I want to ask you married people, what effect has getting married had on your life of personal ministry? And you can have to answer that question before God at some point. What impact has getting married had on your personal ministry? Now, granted, you're going to have a little less disposable time. You're going to have to make some wiser choices with your resources and your energies. But have you fallen completely off the face of the ministry planet because you got married? How many people do you know who are so active in serving God before they got married? And come on, let me hear it now. Especially from single people who whine about this all the time. And then they got married and we never saw them again. They stopped saying yes to everything. And instead they stayed home and cuddled each other and watched sitcoms and ate TV dinners and were just happy as could be. And no one could get them to serve anywhere. Do you know how many such couples are sitting in pews all over churches in this country right now? The word of God says to us, even marriage, as sacred as it is, must never allow us to become confused in whose heart we give our greatest priority. Whose purposes get the most out of us. You know, Jesus also says something rather shocking about family. Flip to the next slide. Listen to what Jesus himself said. If anyone comes to me and does not hate 
his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life. So single people, you got (coughs) hooked in on the last sentence there. Even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If you have a Bible and you're open up to that passage, you've got to underline that last phrase. You cannot be the disciple of Jesus if you're confused about how the priorities work in relationships in your life. God comes first. Everyone and everything else comes second. Now, this is not a scheduling teaching. It's a priority teaching. And some of you, you know, how does God treat idols in our lives? Can you tell me? I'm saying this out of compassion and concern for you. How does he treat idols in our lives? Well, God is a jealous God. Do you remember hearing that in the Bible? Our God is a jealous God. So let me ask you. Well, let me pick out this couple because they're sitting right up here. So Jane, if you see Brian all flirting with some other girl, she's all over him. Mm-hmm, you're so strong. Your hair is so perfect. I love your car. And she's saying all this stuff. What will you do as a jealous wife? You step up to that girl like, uh-uh, sister, back off. right? Wouldn't you say that? Like, Stay away from That's my man. Get back. A jealous person pushes back the offender. You have lost sense of your priorities and boundaries. Get out of here. This is mine. That's what a jealous person does. When God is jealous, he's not jealous in that petty way. He's saying it's better for you never to grow confused about this. And what does he do with the idols in our lives because he loves us? He shatters them. He takes them from us. If your business becomes an idol to you, I guarantee you somewhere along the way, it will either poison you through success or it will devastate you through failure. But he will not allow that idol to stand in your life because he demands to be the highest priority in your life. He knows your life is best off when he is the undisputed first priority in your life. Do you understand that? If we make idols out of our families or our private lives and do not give God what he is due, what will become of those things that we have turned into idols? I see so many families in youth ministry. When I was a youth pastor in Philadelphia, I saw this again and again. People who'd made their children an idol and they had made everything about take care of the kids. Don't teach them to do their chores and all that. The only job they have is to get good grades, go to a great school, have a great life. That's the only job description of their kid. And so they made an idol out of this kid, took him out of church every time he got a little dip in his grades. And at the end of it, when they finally got all these grades, went away to an Ivy League college and came back, here's what the parents would say. Do something for my kid. He's so far from God. I said, how did that kid get there? You made such an idol out of this child, you never taught him who God really is. You taught this child that they are God. That they are the most important being in this solar system. And what are you creating when you do that to a child? You're creating a monster who will drift farther and farther away from the one who properly should be seated on that throne in their lives. Friends, I'm telling you, honestly, from the bottom of my heart, some of you are dangerously close, I suspect, to allowing your families to become an idol in your life. I'm, I'm compassionate because I'm busy too and I've got four kids to raise and I don't want them looking at me one day and saying, you're a terrible daddy, I hate you. They'll probably say it anyway because teenagers are jerks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> sorry teenagers, but it's true, okay, it's true. <laughs> Ungrateful little rograts, but I don't want them to say it and be justified in saying it. So I want to give a high priority to my family. 
But can I just say, as I'm challenged myself, I challenge you as well in love. Don't ever get confused about how these priorities work. I see families so willing to rearrange everything to make room for music lessons and sports and this club and that extracurricular activity. But I wonder, are we also making the same adjustments to give God and his kingdom the first priority as Jesus himself commanded? Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then everything else will come. I think that's the word of God. There's no way around that. Men, especially, you've asked me lots of questions in this congregation about the nature of spiritual leadership. One of the greatest acts of spiritual leadership you can give to your family is a visible commitment to making God the highest priority for your family. You teach that to your children, and you can die early and still know they are in good hands. But you teach them that they are God's, and heaven help us. Heaven help them. Let me quickly wrap it up with the last aspect of serving God that we need to grow in. And that is the sense of duty. I need to flash the word because it's the way it sounds, it could be misinterpreted. Duty. Not duty. Duty. Duty is a dying concept in the West. More and more, we don't like this idea of an external compulsion to do anything. We got rid of the draft in this country so that the whole army could be what? A volunteer army, voluntary conscription. We don't want involuntary. We want to say yes to things. We want someone else to tell us what we must do. And the funny thing about our psychology in the West is that even if we wanted to do it, the minute someone tells us to do it, it sours our desire completely, doesn't it? I was going to do it, then you told me, and I suddenly felt like not doing it. What is wrong with us? Do you realize how irrational and twisted that psychology is? But when you say it in America, it makes all the sense in the world. I get it. Yeah. I don't want to be told what to do, even if it's really what I already wanted to do. We need therapy. We seriously need therapy. And to illustrate how this idea of duty is being pushed out of our culture, I want to give you a funny illustration I came upon. Flip to the next slide, would you? The 1912 version of the Girl Scout promise, this is how it read. Not that I was a Girl Scout, but Boy Scouts read almost exactly the same. On my honor, I will try. I love that. I will try. That's good. What will we try to do? To do my duty to God and my country to help other people at all times and to obey the Girl Scout law. Mysterious. Flip ahead to the 1996 version of that same pledge. On my honor, I will try to serve God. Duty has been written out and replaced with the word serve. And the great irony is they made that choice to soften the blow, but unintentionally they used a word that has much greater force and depth. They've taken out duty and replaced it with slavery, but in our culture the way we use the word serve is all wrong. The way we use the word serve smacks of the air of voluntary choice. We speak about serving in this manner. We say things like this. Uh, where do you serve? Where do you serve? Which church do you serve at? What ministry do you serve on? And what we're really saying to each other is, what, what thing have you graciously, magnanimously given of yourself to do? 
Isn't that the way we often feel emotionally when we serve someone? I mean, have you ever filled sandbags in a flood or, or packed food for the hungry like we just did this past weekend? Have you ever done that? And then you're like, wow, I'm a good person. I served. I could have done a lot of other things, but I chose to do this. I could have spent this money elsewhere, but I gave it here. I could have used this time elsewhere, but I gave it here. Isn't that the way most of us in America hear and use the word serve? It's actually become a harmless substitute for duty. But let me ask you, and and the one word that summarizes this cultural shift best is the word volunteer. In fact, there are some big churches in this country that speak of everyone not as servants, but as volunteers, and I get why they do that, it's to emphasize the fact that they are not paid for what they do. I'm paid for this, so I'm supposed to be doing all this crazy stuff, but you guys aren't paid, and so you are volunteers, and I acknowledge that. I am so thankful for all of you volunteers. But that word can also lead us down a very wrong road. It can send the wrong message about what it means to serve God. If you keep referring to it as volunteering, here's what we're hearing when we say it. I am giving myself to God. But that's not really the way it works. It is that I am acknowledging I belong to God. It is not a gift I give so much as I embrace the reality of what is. I am God's servant. And I hope that I can give that service with joy and love in my heart. But regardless of the spirit that I have, there can be no confusion for me in this. It is my duty to serve my God. It's my duty to serve my God. You know, most of us, when we serve, we serve on our own terms, don't we? Can you come out for this thing? Well, it meets Thursday nights. I can do Tuesdays, but I really can't do Thursdays. And there are often inflexible things like that. But most of us are used to serving God on our own terms. We're losing this idea That for the true Christian, serving God is not optional. It is part of our duty. That's why I I kind of don't like using the language of volunteer. And I want to give a very loving challenge to some of you in this church. I want you to think about what would happen. In in the United States, you realize without a draft, we have a very strong, very large volunteer army. But I use the word volunteer when I say army in quotes, okay? Is Jason Kim in the room? So you're part of the volunteer army. So Jason, I wonder if this would fly with your commanding officer. Uh, Jason, or maybe call you, what's your rank? Ooh, all right, big shy, whatever. <laughs> Lieutenant Kim, I want you to, and I, he's not in one of those divisions where he's shooting at people. I want you to file these, these documents. <laughs> Risk your life, file these documents. Now, can Jason, I'm sorry, Lieutenant Kim, at that point, can he cite the fact that he's part of a volunteer army? There's no sense of duty, authority, conscription. There's simply, well, I signed up for this stuff. I'll decide if I want to file those documents or not. Today, the truth is, I really am not in a document filing mood. I'm more in a database entering mood. So, would you just leave that there? And what will your CO say? <laughs> There'll be something coming down to you, right? Because it's only volunteer in the sense that you acknowledge he will not force you into it. You must embrace and acknowledge it. But once in, 
there is really nothing volunteer left about it. Duty kicks in. How much could you get done with a truly volunteer army? Give me a break. Squad B, storm that bunker. I need volunteers. Who wants to do it? Come on, are you kidding me? How many guys are going to storm that bunker? Everyone's like, you know, actually, I got some appointments to do, you know, and you find something you got to do. You can't do anything with a truly volunteer army. There's a reason God's kingdom sometimes seems to crawl at such a snail's pace, especially in the most developed and wealthiest nations. And it is that we see ourselves only through the lens of a volunteer and forget our duty to be the servants of the living God. It's refreshing for me when I go to countries where the people have nothing and they are so much more aware of their identity as the slaves of Christ. It's not a lot of salesmanship that has to happen. They just accept it. If God is God, must I not be his servant? And I want to give that loving challenge to us in America. Let's not lose the reality of duty in the midst of seeing ourselves as volunteers. If God is going to accomplish anything great in this country through the the Christians in this nation, we must take off the, the robe of volunteerism and embrace the robe of servanthood and take up our duty to be available to God as though he were our highest priority in life. I wasn't expecting to get a whole lot of amens during this message, so that's okay, it's cool. I I emotionally brace myself for it before coming to church. But I hope the Lord's word has done something somewhere deep inside of you. We're talking about reaching up and taking next steps. And one of the ways we, we most relate to God is when we start to serve him. Some of you have been with us for a long time, And at present, you have no ministry at this church. And not just at this church, there isn't a sense in which you have a personal ministry. If that's speaking to you, and and you believe that actually being here is part of your ministry, may I just lovingly correct you? Participation and attendance are not a ministry, at least not most of the time. Those things are for your benefit. They are to fill your life with goodness and the presence of God. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ... May I just firmly challenge you on this. And you're just a spectator at this church. You are outside of the will of God for your life. If you don't have a personal ministry in this place, you need to find one. Because this is not an optional thing. It is your duty as a redeemed son or daughter of Christ. And can I suggest to you that as you embrace that, your experience and your relationships in this church will click. And the reason some of you feel so far away from this community is that you have no place in it. That's just my honest statement to you. You come out to your small group. You come out to Sunday service. You come out to all the things that are made where the table is set for you. But unless you begin to serve God in this place, you will always feel somewhat disconnected from what is happening here. You have a ministry that you were called to perform among us. And I'm begging you to sit before God in quiet and find out what that is. Some of you are going to discover a huge personal revival as that happens in your life. And if you're at all confused about what you can do for God, would you make an appointment with me? 
I'll buy you a great lunch and I will fill your heart with visions of what even you, if you look at yourself, even me, even you can build the kingdom of God. And you don't even have to go to Bible school to do it. With what you already know, you can make a huge impact on the kingdom of God. And I'm full of ideas. So come see me. And I'll help break that writer's block in your life. Can we bow together to pray? So I ask you, as you think about your relationship with God and your identity as a servant of God, where are some of the places where the tweaking needs to happen this morning? Do you have to wrestle a little bit more with the idea of God's authority? Are you confused right now about who really has the total dominion over your life? Are you caught negotiating with God when you should actually be submitting to God? Perhaps it's an issue of priority. God is important, and so he's first on your written list. But is he really first on the real list, the list you live out? Can you reconcile your actual life to the word of God in Matthew 6.33? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything else will come. Maybe for you, you're steeped in this mindset of the volunteer. You've been watching this church grow, but it's time now. The Lord is tugging at your heart, and you know it. See, now don't watch the church grow. Come and help the church to grow. Come and build the kingdom, for there are many yet without shelter who need to find their way to God through the ministry of this church. And beloved, you are not called to be a watcher, but a participant in this great unfolding story of God's kingdom. Whichever one of those three things represent your next step, let's bow together for a moment of quiet and let's pray to God about that. And then let's listen to what he says back to us. You know, I think it's universally recognized that we serve the ones we love. But I think it's also true that we grow to love the ones that we serve. Your heart is feeling a little far from God these days. Can I invite you?
to seriously consider that if you begin serving God as though He were God and you are His beloved child, His servant, that in doing that, you might find that water for your thirsty heart. And if the Lord is leading you this morning to make a pledge of service to Him, then in just the next 30 seconds or so, I'm going to invite you in quiet to make that pledge and say, Lord, I accept. I accept this arrangement. You are master, and I am your servant. And I don't want to be confused any longer about how that works. To make that pledge now. You need to continue praying. This has been some heavy material, and I would encourage you just to stay seated, if you like, and continue staying before the Lord. Um, if you can move on from your prayer, I invite you just to look up. You can remain seated, but just look up, and let's sing this last song together. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.